Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Lindsay Stern. How do you send a message that lasts 10,000 years? In 1990, the U.S. federal government invited a group of astrophysicists, architects, archaeologists, artists, linguists, geologists, and writers to the desert of New Mexico to try to answer this question. The site, home to the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, is our country's only permanent underground storage place for nuclear waste. Deep in the earth, it houses clothing, tags, debris, soil, and other items laced with man-made radioactive elements that will remain deadly for hundreds of thousands of years. The Human Interference Task Force, convened by the EPA, was tasked with creating a warning system that would be understood and effectively deter humans from removing what had been buried in the tomb for the next 10,000 years. 10,000 years. As our guest Robert McFarlane points out, quote, The oldest pyramid is around 4,600 years old. The oldest surviving church building is fewer than 2,000 years old, end quote. In his new book, Underland, A Deep Time Journey, McFarlane tells the story of the U.S. task force and visits a nuclear waste storage facility deep underground. He writes, quote, This is a risk that will outlast not only the life of its makers, but perhaps also the species of its makers. How to mark this site? How to tell whatever beings will come to this desert place what is kept in the rock sarcophagus is desperately harmful, is not of value, must never be disturbed. The challenges, he writes, faced by the panels were formidable. How to devise a warning system that could survive, both structurally and semantically, even catastrophic phases of planetary future. How to communicate with unknown beings-to-be across chasms of time to the effect that they must not intrude into these burial chambers. As McFarlane recounts, suggestions included constructing an above-ground landscape of thorns, quote, 50-foot-high concrete pillars with jutting spikes that impeded access and suggested danger to the body, a black hole, quote, a mass of black granite or concrete that absorbed solar energy to become impassably hot, and an atomic priesthood, an ordained commission that would adapt and retell myths about the plant across generations. The Waste Isolation Pilot Plant is currently expected to be sealed in 2038. How we humans will mark the site remains up for debate. Presently, our government plans to include a stone slab inscribed with maps and scientific details in every current UN language, with a simple, humble warning that begins, We are going to tell you what lies underground, why you should not disturb this place, and what may happen if you do. In his new book, Underland, A Deep Time Journey, the writer Robert McFarlane descends into caves with underground labs, Norway's offshore oil fields, hidden soil fungi networks, and the moulins of Greenland's melting glaciers. He goes into the earth to tell readers what lies underground, why we explore but should not disturb this place, and what is happening to the earth and to us now that our species has done just that. His well-known and beloved other books include The Old Ways, Landmarks, Mountains of the Mind, and The Lost Words. He teaches at the University of Cambridge and joins us in New York. Robert McFarlane, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Hey, both. Thank you so much. So as you know, this podcast is often about specific animals, what we know about them, uh, what we think we know about them, the stories we tell about them, what those stories reflect about ourselves. 
and whether we're giving them the respect that they deserve as our fellow creatures here on earth. And your book is not about animals directly, (laughs) uh, but you're very gracious and joined us on the podcast anyway. But it is indirectly about those same issues and in profound ways, because you're focused on this question throughout the book of, are we being good ancestors? Mm, Yeah. Not just to future people, but to future beings of of all sorts. And you, you talk in the book as the title suggests, about a concept that you call deep time, which you say viewing the world you know, through deep time changes how we even think about what it means to be alive or to be human in profound ways, and it can make us better. I'm wondering, will you explain what deep time is and why it matters? Yes, yes, I will. And and some animals will feature in that explanation too, <laughs> I think. Um, deep time is a phrase coined by John McPhee in his his great geological work, uh, Omnium Gatherum, the, the Annals of the Former World. And it's a lovely, it's a, it's a great phrase for an impossible concept. Uh, deep time is geological time. It's earth history time. It's the units of timekeeping eons and epochs that, that make our minutes and days and years look uh, wafer thin and preposterous and trivial. And it echoes, uh, geology is a really young science, actually. It's late 18th, early 19th century in the form we know it. But there's an amazing document from the late 19th century where James Playfair is is standing with Hutton, one of the fathers of modern geology, and, and Hutton unfolds deep time descriptively in front of him. They're standing looking at an unconformity. And Playfair says, the mind seemed to grow giddy looking at over the abyss of time. And so Playfair's abyss and, and McPhee's depth are really the same thing, that, that temporal vertigo that I think we all have sometimes, right? Where you're like, this earth is so old, but the earth is also old to come as well as past. And I guess that that is what um, that chapter that you have um, touched on there is is about. Um, these animals, which I'll just drop in before I, I hand back to you, they, they are, deep time is doing strange stuff right now. It is shallowing in all sorts of ways. Stable sequences of, of, of time, this idea that the deeper down you go, the further back you get, are getting uh, shifted around by our Anthropocene activities. We're burning carbonifer- carboniferous era forests to melt Pleistocene era ice to shift Anthropocene future climates. And some of the things that are coming to the surface our critters. <laughs> I don't know if you saw. Did you see that incredible news story about the um, the Yukon miners who met the fifty thousand year old wolf pup? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it came up from the permafrost, the not permafrost, the tempera frost, <laughs> and it was there. It had its hair intact. It had the curl on its lip that we've all seen a domestic dog snarl like, and it was there with its eyes closed, born again by the Anthropocene into the present. How eerie is that? It's an amazing manifestation of that concept of the return of the repressed. Yes, yes, it, it is. And it's so, like, <laughs> Freud sort of, I mean, Freud hangs over the underworld anyway. But, yeah, it, it feels like buried trauma, um, which is being experienced as distress widely now by, by many people, but also us, our capacity as storage managers has uh, been exceeded by our capacity as waste generators. So many of the things that we thought we had safely buried are now by sheer volume, but also by these temporal fluctuations that we are um, manifesting, are are, are rising up and spilling out. And along with them come these visitors like the wolf pup. It's 
haunting the ambivalence that you talk about in the book, too, about it's both the sight of the things that we want to distance ourselves from, but also simultaneously the sight of what we find most precious. I thought that there's such a magnificent way that the book explores that ambivalence in a way that's finally very gentle toward it, not in a kind of condemnatory way. And I, I thought I was just so struck by that as, as a work of art. Thank you. Um, I, that's interesting to hear. I think we, we you know, we, we, we must be tender to ourselves if, 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 we, if we want to find the best of ourselves uh, going forwards, as it were. And um, I think um, condemnation is, is important where it's needed, um, but, but so too is tenderness. Um, and I think we are, uh, as I say at one point in the book, often more tender to the to the dead than to the living, and I think if I learned one one thing, it was how tender we uh, we need to be to to the living and and to the, to the living to come uh, as as well. But yes, you're absolutely right that into the underworld we have long placed not just things that we fear and wish to get rid of, like nuclear waste, but also things that we love and wish to keep safe from the temporal accelerations and and vulnerabilities of the surface and. That might be the dead, the loved dead who we bury so that we can revisit them, uh, animal and um, and human or, or, or other than human animals. Um, but it might also be information. And I, I was thinking about, I know your focus is on animals, but you're interested in species, as speciesisms as, as well of, of many kinds. And up at Spitsbergen, the global seed vault is uh, is being constructed, which is, which is effectively a, an archive of... Yeah, of, of of biodiversity in in seeds and in in plant life, and and we we've made this huge strange archive there, and in the permafrost of of all the things that again might need to survive, whatever is to come. So we are we are it is a place where we care for species other than our own. <laughs> the interesting thing about that, I think, and tying back into the introductory story of the nuclear waste signage, is that it's a not just an example of which there's so many in your book of humans glimpsing their own extinction, <laughs> but both glimpsing it and then caring profoundly about the beings that come after us yeah. in a way that to your point about how we often don't care for the living as much, you could say, you know, that the same, we need the same sort of revelation and in awareness and care towards other creatures who yeah. are here with us now. Yeah. Um, but it was a very hopeful story in many ways, but both a very dark story in that you see, the horrors of what's to come or perhaps on the horizon are already here, but also hopeful in the case of the nuclear waste facility in particular that perhaps we haven't gotten there with climate change yet, but with nuclear waste at least, there seems to be a reckoning and a responsibility taking, futile as it may be, <laughs> to actually achieve, but yes. I found it quite moving. Well, I'm so glad to hear that because I went expecting, I think the, the nuclear culture calls out the melodrama in us, in many people, and 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 sometimes for for good reasons, um, and other times not. Uh, actually, you know, we're we're pretty good at managing nuclear culture on the whole, and there are some anomalous examples to the contrary of that that we that we all know. Um, but yes, I went expecting with my melodramatic nuclear melodrama <laughs> deep inside me. I went expecting a sort of end of days Gotterdammerung, and what I found was. A group of a, a nation state, a group of people, actors within that nation state, seeking to do the best possible job they could by the greatest number of people in an imperfect and messy situation, 
and to to make safe exactly as you say not just for the present but actually for the distant future for people they had never met for species they had never they could not imagine um and that that this to me was both an ancient act and an urgent act and yeah a, a moving act i don't want to over sentimentalize it there are difficulties there um and um and and and, and there have been problems but but it, it did strike me and I, as such, and I also read this Finnish folk epic, uh, the Kalevala, while I was there, which is um, uh, sort of emerges in Karelia in the Baltic, out, comes out of the Baltic states in the 13th, 14th century, and then gets gathered by antiquarians like lots of these folk epics do in the 19th century. But this really is a story about uh, relations with uh, other than human and supernatural beings and what is stored underground, which is both what is dangerous and what is marvelous. And it, I read that close to the disposal site in a, on a deep in the deep winter. And it was so uncanny to see this old form, this old language, folk uh, collaboratively woven folk epic, reckoning with exactly the questions you are asking and we are asking now today. It's interesting because Thomas Sibiak, who you discuss in the book, who was one of the one of the linguists recruited to help design those signs. Yes. I learned recently that he was one of the figures who was very against a movement in the 70s and 80s to try to study animal on non-human animals capacity to speak something like human language through keyboards and such. And ah. but it's so it's just fascinating. And I think it speaks to what you were saying before about the the kind of ambivalences that that kind of project can capture. And um, what was, if if I may ask, what was Sibiok's, uh, if you know, what were, what was the basis of his objection to this sort of version of language measurement? One of the many jewels of the book is you, you speak about language, some indigenous languages, one of which has, I think, 70% verbs to English hmm. has 30% hmm. verbs. And... In this particular language, as you write, the words for the object sort of make a claim about whether the object is animate mm -hmm, or not. So mm -hmm. the mountains are animate, but also songs and stories are animate. Mm -hmm. We were curious about how you think about the animal as a category. Like we, we think so much about humans versus other beings and what the Anthropocene might mean for ourselves as a species. Mm -hmm. Are we, you know, perpetrating basically a version of manifest destiny on the <laughs> species level? But... I think your book also troubles that easy distinction between where do animals end and, and nature begin. Yes. And, and you can feel in the prose that you just animate the landscape for us hmm. through the music of the sentences. Thank you. That's uh, when I was saying yes there. I wasn't agreeing. I should say with your evaluation of <laughs> of my prose, I was I was I was following your thought and and and, and relishing it as such. And. Um, the, this idea of what I call after Robin Wall Kimmerer, a, a grammar of animacy, that there, that there may be ways in, and many people have discussed this, in which our language, uh, grammar, is, grammar is language's underland. It's where it's where its habits sediment down and, and, and form strata and fossilize and set. Um, and and therefore it's an ideological space because that, 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 that is where the decisions that are made over... Um, many, many things, but among them who to attribute um, sentience or personhood or subjecthood to uh, uh, find their find their, their, their forms as, as grammar. And once they've sedimented, they go on, 
seen, I think, to a degree. We all we all know that the the kind of unfelt habits of and presumptions of language, and we see those in the 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 the, the, the very active conflicts over pronoun use now within within human groups um social groups and 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 identity groups um so so yes i am very interested in 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 how uh, units of language and, and grammars might recognize that and that 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 animacy but there is a there is a second uh, conversation here which has to do with what jacques rancière calls the partition of the sensible which is a phrase i don't know if you come across this this is so rancière says we have lived for too long with a um, a boundary between um what we consider to be life and not life that's the partition of the sensible um sensible in that sense of uh, rather than the kind of wise um mm-hmm. but the two are conjoined um and the partition of the sensible he says has it sort of it drops um around animals so humans and animals yes we recognize these as life um we have slightly more problems admitting the kind of plant kingdom to 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 notions of of of, of life and we have even more problems admitting the the fungal kingdom to notions of life as, as we sort of move away for uh, keep our distance and then he says that we, what we don't admit is is what we think of as inert matter, rock and ice and air and weather and all these other forms of um, uh, of entity. And Rancière argues for an enlargement of the partition of the or destruction of the partition of the sensible. Throw it open. Now there's dangers with that, which is the the the, the famous danger is that it it calls out a flat ontology. And the flat ontology says, "Well, well, all you know, everything in the world is is lively, <laughs> everything is vibrant, everything is alive, everything has subjecthood, and therefore you end up with this problem of how you assign relative levels of value or importance to those forms of subjecthood." But I am still drawn to the thought experiment, at least, um, and deep time helps us with that thought experiment because as soon as we see ice and rock moving within the context of deep time, my goodness, it's lively. And it is powerfully agential as well. And I know that those are not necessarily constitutive of what we might call life or what we even might call rightful subjecthood. But I, I am I, I am fascinated by what happens when looking through the deep time optic, we see these things move and, and become lively in those ways. There's a very long answer to your very good question. I don't know if I got anywhere near answering <laughs> it. And in addition to that point of that rock isn't just rock, but as we see in the book, life, literally life accumulated of ancient skeletons condensed. Yes. And you likewise write that our bodies aren't just life, but rock. Yes. And there's a very beautiful phrase that you come up with called the geology of the body, which I thought was fascinating. And, and if you'll let me, I'll read one sentence here from the book, which is, we are part mineral beings too. Our teeth are reefs, our bones are stones, and there is a geology of the body as well as of the land. It is mineralization, the ability mm. to convert calcium into bone that allows us to walk upright, to be vertebrae, to fashion the skulls that shield our brains. Mm. And I mm. thought that flip of the, the idea of both, both we're rocks mm. and rocks are life it was very moving you can feel the animacy that you speak of Th- thank you i i i think the the insight is uh Vanadsky's, um, rather than mine but it, it, it like as as with you when you met it when i met it it struck me so strongly in this idea that yes of course we we became bony beings we we learned to be <laughs> to metabolize almost geologically and that has given us our posture and, and all that has followed from 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 that and so so many things so yeah it is you know a kidney stone is a is a is a 
geological <laughs> presence, um, <laughs> an unwanted one, but and our teeth are, are yeah. Are, so these are these to me are, f- are fascinating. They can leave us in a vague space, which doesn't get us very far. But um, but I think that there's they 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 belong to that order of idea that when first met. And I think the Anthropocene, if we if we can call it that, is another of those ideas that when first met, rocks you back, and and delivers what um, what Christoph Bonoy calls the sh- the shock of the Anthropocene, and um, and yeah, the shock that this what might call geoontology, geo ge- um, the sort of being of of landedness or of of earthness is um, is one of those, and it is easy to forget. I read that you keep a notebook that contains fragments of the land mud and some and i was curious um reading whether i mean because you're someone you're you're conducting these explorations within language and unearthing these terms that open up these new dimensions of the mind that had been getting dusty potentially from me (laughs) and then but then you're the rare writer who on land is sort of as intrepid as you are in the mind and so I couldn't help but wonder just from a, a process perspective, are these chapters and these questions forming for you as you're physically in these hmm. landscapes or is it more that you go absorb them and then they percolate and then they end up on the page or does it vary or what is it like for you to explore in the world versus exploring in, in thought? Well, that's a that's a uh, a wonderful question coming as it does after uh, the idea of mineralization, because you suddenly put into my mind that the, this is a the notebooks are in some way where where mineralization occurs. In <laughs> yeah, uh, thanks to you, I I now see that. I mean, that's literally some of them do have bits of mica, flakes of mica from Greenland, or I like to pick up dust, um, rock dust, uh, just to remember uh, kind of at a particulate level sedimentary level what that place was like i mean these are these are in a way tri- trivial um souvenirs um that one might pick up in the uh, landscape equivalent of a gift shop as it, as it were but but they're important they're important to me um but into the into the notebook also goes this um this kind of raw matter of, of fragments and shards of image and and bits of data but mostly image um and and then then when i come back from a place i I I spend a day or two days, how long it is, I just pouring everything I can remember. I will sit at a computer and just pour and pour image, sentence, memory, everything haptic, um, um, uh, verbal, um, uh, so informational um, down. And that I always think of as the like the potter getting the big lump of wet clay and sort of grabbing it out of the ground, the 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 the, the hole, and then thump, down it goes on the wheel. And it's an ugly process. There's no craft and no pride in it. But it is that is the that's the matter. And then comes the treadle, and you start pressing your foot, and slowly the wheel turns and turns and turns and turns. And then and then that turning treadling process is what takes all of those years <laughs> and still might lead to muck definitely did not lead to muck in this case so. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> you you write in the book at one point that 30 years ago you were focused on these questions in a way even as a little kid and you tell in addition to telling the stories of the remarkable 
people that you meet with great affection along the way. You also tell a very brief story in the book about how you and your father made a time capsule when you Mm. were a young child and placed into it various objects and messages and put it beneath the floorboards, Mm. including a jar with a notebook page where you wrote in pencil, quite tall for my age, very blonde hair, biggest fear, nuclear war. Mm. You're still quite tall and you still have blonde (laughs) hair. um, But I'm wondering if you were to make a time capsule like that now, what would you write as your biggest fear today? Wow, what a brilliant question. Is that book... Is this book that time capsule? Well, that is a that's another brilliant question, and it doubled down on its excellence with that last phrase. Uh, I do I do think of this book uh, as a time capsule. It is uh, it is um, full of messages that are made in one time period, being read or interpreted in another. And if there is a, as it were, a hermeneutic at the or at the heart of it, it is it is the difficulties of making sense across expanses of deep time, all the ways in which we long to recover and read signal, uh, and not just across time, but across species spaces and across other forms of divergence and discrepancy and distance. And um, so, yes, in some sense, I guess if I had to put any of my books under a floorboard, if I were arrogant (laughs) enough to think that the future would need anything from me, which it doesn't, um, it it would probably be this one, because I think although although it is the oldest book I've uh, ever written, it is the most of the now as well. Um, but I probably wouldn't put a book of mine in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a time capsule book as how, how ar- arrogant would that be? Um, what, what would I put? That is, that is such a good question. Um, I think what I would put is, uh, is a piece of ice. And of course, what that would leave behind is, is nothing at all. Um, it, it, it would melt. Um, but I, I think we are, we are, we are living through what Michael McCarthy calls the great thinning, and uh, and that sense both of, of 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 rising up, and of falling away, of of a thickening of the trash layer, of the toxic layer, and a thinning of the 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 value layer, as it were. And um, ice is what is the substance that manifests that that thinning most most drastically and most consequentially. And so if I might be allowed to put in that in that gem jar a piece of ice that would leave no trace of itself. Mm. You, I know you've quoted before um, the book The Great Derangement mm. um, by Amitav Ghosh, mm. in which he writes about why there are so few and ineffective stories about climate change mm. today. And he identifies three main challenges posed by the Anthropocene to literature and culture, um, which you've written about before, which are how to represent action and consequence within deep time, Mm -hmm. how to recognize the life of the more than human Mm -hmm. and how to come to terms with the fact that humans are not the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious in telling stories about climate change, are there particular roles to bring it back to animals that you think Mm -hmm. animals can play in trying to overcome these challenges and make the sorts of stories that you tell in this book and, you know, the reality of, of, what we're doing to many millions of years into the future, more immediately accessible to people such that they take it into account and ask the question that you return to again and again of, are we being good ancestors and how can we be better ones? Yeah, this is, this is a great question. Um, I, I'm going to ask it back of you both um, just so you're, you're warned. I would be so fascinated to know from you what writers and what kind of artworks responding to animals are doing this, if you if you if you think they are, um, and I'm going to slightly uh, disappoint you by sidestepping 
out of animals and into the vegetable by saying that that Richard Powers is the overstory, mm-hmm. um, which which I, I I don't know where you draw your the boundaries of animal life. Where where does your where do your animals stop? Where do they stop being animals and and start being plants? Well, after reading this book, we draw it a whole lot further than before. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but I guess Richard's uh, Richard's book, uh, the overstory, is precisely about the difficulty of of drawing what what Henry James called the, the circle of relations round and uh, uh, and in that all manner of life is drawn into its complex um, relations through the, through these trees which become the timekeepers and the witnesses and and to some powerful degree the agents so i for me that is the most powerful example of a of a book that addresses itself to other other than human life um which uh, which dramatizes both the kind of deep the, the tree time pasts and the tree time futures that that are forms of responsibility as well as just artifact if that makes sense what about you two who f- i would love to know who you think are the important animal writers now i mean i think jm could see it. Hmm. i remain haunted by mm. elizabeth costello yeah. and yeah. the, lives of, the lives of animals yeah and and of course he's concerned with with what that question brings out about human communication and and what's at stake in in the ethical dimension of the question, what we might have to give up if we were to look at it in the way his not his protagonist does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are two writers for the New York Times that come to mind for me. There are so many, but two in particular who are writing now. One is Charles Siebert, and yes. the other is a young guy who will hope to have on the podcast later this summer named Ferris Jabber. Um, and uh. they both write about animals, among other topics to do with the natural world, but in ways that really capture what I think is special about animals in terms of mm-hmm. potentially one of the things in terms of climate change that's captured in a quote that you include in your book by um, Jed Purdy from his book, After Nature. And both both Siebert and Jabber, I think, accomplished this in their work in really extraordinary ways. But the, the quote by Jed Purdy is this, which is that people are best able to change their ways when they find two things at once in nature, something to fear, a threat they must avoid, and something to love, a quality, which they can do their best to honor. Either impulse can stay the human hand, but the first stops it just short of being burnt or broken. The second keeps the hand poised, extending it in greeting or in an offer of peace. This gesture is the beginning of a collaboration among people, but beyond us in building our next home. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that uh, it's a wonderful uh, paragraph from from Jed, isn't it? And um, I listened to your Charles Siebert. That was one of the episodes of this podcast that I listened to, and I thought it was so good, so humble um, and um, inquiring, and it, it was brilliant. And and Ferris Jabber, I, it, now this is a name I've met, but will you just tell me what I should read? I can find this work on, on the New York Times website. Is there a book that... There's a forthcoming book, and there have been several features, one of which was about prairie dogs um, in the Times. Ah. And it had a wonderful um, sonic artifact of a prairie dog's cry that it specifically means human, that it calls when it hears a human. So there's this wonderfully evocative, like the prairie dog word for for what we are. But, um, But he's written, I mean, he's written on the Gaia concept, on neuroscience, on the meat industry, and I think, yeah, a sense of um, plant identification on mi- the mineralization of animals and all sorts of things. Okay. Very expensive. That, um, that is, and, and I would throw Robin Wall 
Kimmerer's name in 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 here and um, Terry Tempest Williams mm-hmm. uh, and Annie Dillard and other you know writers from female writers and from di- and from different I've learned so much from encountering their encounters with yeah and we were thrilled to learn online too that you have another book coming out with the illustrator Jackie Morris who you did the last words with which will be called the book of birds and I wonder if if you could tell us a little bit about that project. Yes, uh, gladly. I work with this conjurer, um, J- Jackie Morris. I have all, all the artistic skill of uh, of a prairie dog, which I, which I then realise is d- hugely demeaning to the to the artistic work undertaken by prairie dogs. Um, so I don't. I should. <laughs> I, I don't mean to be dismissive at all. So I should change of a table. I have no artistic skill whatsoever. And uh, Jackie is uh, Jackie conjures creatures into being with uh, a brush and water and some pigment. She's a a watercolorist of astonishing abilities. We worked together on this book called The Lost Words. We have worked together on many things since. And one of the things we've just finished, in fact, it's released today is a song called the Selkie Song. And Selkies are seals. Um, it's a, S- a Scots word for the, for the seal. And um, uh, it, the, the, there is a long tradition on the Atlantic coasts in um, in Ireland and in North Atlantic, northwest coast of Scotland, of selkies and selkies cross borders. They 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 are seal people effectively. So they move both ways as they step out of the water. They shrug off their seal skin and become humans. And as they cross the water into the sea again, they shrug on their seal skin and become seals. So they've become these interstitial boundary crossing migratory un. Uh, uh, category unsettling presences that haunt folk story and folk song. And there are these, there's an amazing genre of Gaelic selkie songs which are used to summon seals. And I've seen it done. I mean, it's incredible. I've sat with my friend Finley McLeod, a Gaelic, first language Gaelic speaker, and he's, he's sung this haunting selkie song. And, and the seals have come. They've come. So anyway, uh, the only the only disadvantage of selkie is that one's phone auto corrects it to selfie, and I, <laughs> I feel this is a, this is a comment. But anyway, so Jackie and I've been working on a selkie song, which which itself shivers on the boundaries of the of the human and the and the seal, the the, the sad and the joyful, the drowning and the summoning. But we we are working on a book of birds, um, which is about birds as they vanish. Um, we have a red list in Britain of species at most conservation concern. Uh, it's about 68 species on it at the moment. They include nightingale, um, uh, turtle dove, um, la- um, lapwing, skylark, puffin, some of our, and I think your most famous and iconic and culturally significant birds, they're going. And so we, we, we are working on a, a new form of guidebook, really a guidebook, which instead of identifying the animal species in that in that sense of naming, knowing, and objectifying, which has its place. Um, we think there is another kind of identification, one which I guess interests you both in lots of ways, which is that that more empathetic sense of feeling a knowing from the heart, feeling a, a collapse of the space between kinds of being. So we want to we want to write a guidebook that helps people identify these red list species in that way. Mm-hmm. I thought of your book recently because 
We're very lucky to have a chimney swift colony now in downtown New Haven. Um, and I had never seen this before. I was tipped off to it by someone who told me that if you stand, go to the top floor of a parking garage in downtown New Haven and you look across the street, there's a particular chimney that's left uncovered. And if you go at dusk or right before dusk, effectively, you'll see the birds fly out and they live in colonies of there must be five or six hundred at wow. a minimum in this in this chimney. And they'll fly out and then they they circle in big loops, hunting insects at dusk. And yes. then right as it turns black, it's like reverse smoke going Whoa. back into the chimney all at once as they go in. And um, for anyone who doesn't know, these are little birds they are sometimes called cigars with wings. <laughs> they can't um, perch on anything other than a vertical, like a typical bird, but uh, but I had never seen a chimney swift before, and I'd never uh, really even thought about lovebirds. but never thought even thought about chimney swifts all that often. And um, I have to say, it's one of the most magical elements of the summer so far wow. is to get to. I've gone and watched them multiple times. Huh. Um, is to see that happening and to feel uh, you know the profound wonder that knowing that this thing exists that you don't even notice really from the street level yes. because. You know, they're they're high up. There's a lot of street sounds and yep. so forth, but they, they chatter nonstop as well. So if they you go to do. the top floor, you can hear them. And so I really eagerly look forward to your <laughs> book to being introduced to more that I should be looking out for. Well, I came to New York from North Carolina uh, and I turned up there three, four days ago and we walked out in, in the evening and I suddenly heard this chattering that to me was the chattering of swallows. I looked up and they were swifts. And I said to the person I was with, who happened to be Jed Purdy, I said, what What are these? These are swifts and they sound like swallows. And he said, those are chimney swifts. Mm. And I loved them, smaller than ours, still crossbows, but cigars with wings and making this very homely, chittering, chattering noise. And then he said, you know, if you're really lucky, if you ever see a big roost, you'll see them come down like debris down a plug hole. And the one bird I've seen out of my 24th window floor uh, 24th floor window here in New York City this morning was a chimney swift so mm. this is great convergence <laughs> it's interesting the moment in your book when you talk about the cave paintings in what is now mm. Europe and Norway it reminded me of the observation by the critic and novelist John Berger mm. in his in his essay why look at animals that at the dawn of language which historically has been seen as this thing that we have and, and other animals don't. Mm. There were animals and it was potentially this desire to represent them that's present at the very beginning of this capacity that then helped us conquer the earth and drive the Anthropocene. And I just, hmm. and I, I'm really thinking loud here, but in the book you talk a little bit about one criticism of the concept of the Anthropocene, which is that saying, okay, all humans did this basically exonerates the industrializing humans, which is a very small segment of humans that drove the change. I, I mean, I was just so fascinated by this alchemy that you have with words. And it occurred to me because it's like language has been invoked as this thing that, oh, you know, you talk in the book about how the Greek word for sign also meant grave. Mm -hmm. And there's this sense in which language... Many, many writers and thinkers have spoke, have, have written about language as a wedge between us and nature. Mm -hmm. And as a lot of thinking about shamanism involves mm -hmm. this idea of unburdening ourselves of the sign, so to speak, and mm -hmm. re-enlivening ourselves. It occurred to me for the first time, I guess this is kind of a basic thought, but of course it's just maybe a way of using language that cleaves us. And certainly the way that you're using language and that, you know, certain poets use language has the reverse effect and seems to kind of return us 
to an almost musical stage in language. And so I was, I guess, just curious about if it, if you had ever thought of language as a distancing mechanism hmm. or whether in your own, in the evolution of your own thinking, it had always been a portal for you hmm. into nature. Well, following your uh, thread there through, uh, through those tunnels, and they are tunnels because these are hard thoughts, um, I, I found myself in two chambers as I listened. And one was, um, uh, one was to do with the fact that I think this simple, uh, uh, powerful proposition that language always alienates, uh, which, for example, David Abram in The Spell of the Sensuous, which is a, a huge book for me, really fascinating and important book. Um, but if I had one uh, criticism of it, it might be that it it finds language always warping us away away from the world. And I, in my own experience, that that isn't the case. I think that when one recognizes that language will always be an artificial medium of meeting between self and world, whatever we mean by those categories, but that it can be better done or worse done, that it can be that it can bring us closer or push us further away, or it can be revelatory or, or, or conquistadorial in these problematic ways, then the conversation starts to become interesting to me. And there's the second chamber in which I found myself was thinking back to this book called The Peregrine by J.A. Baker. And I don't know, have you read this yet, Viveka? I have, it? quite a while ago. But Someone once told me it was like, um, their line was, which is very true, it was like eating extraordinarily rich dark chocolate. That book. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's so magnificent and, uh, and yet, in each sentence yeah yeah i i guess i would think of it as um as eating the 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 the, the blood hot entrails of a of, mm. a of a wood pigeon fresh fresh from the peregrine kill in a way it's kind of both revolting and and compulsive compulsive and problematic and yeah uh but that book is one of the most stylized and artificial works of writing i know it is also one of the most extraordinary works i know about particularly about human and, and, and animal relations. And it is, in effect, the, the the confessional diary of a man who is so appalled with his own species that he wishes to to leave it by means of a, a kind of forceful and shamed negative capability. And the means of that negative capability is ritual. He re-performs the actions of, of the mantling hawk, the hunting hawk, the bathing hawk. He calls it a... He calls it a hawk, but it's a falcon. Um, uh, but but it's also through language. Uh, and language is the best bad means he has of of becoming bird, of absconding guiltily from his own murderous species category. So I that to me is is a problematic and compelling example of language's work uh, warping us towards the other than human. One thing I really loved about this book is that you combine glimpses of tremendous scales of, of time mm. and of size of the glaciers and of depth of all sorts that we humans can hardly comprehend mm. with stories of individual characters you meet along the way during your expeditions who the reader comes to feel, and it's very obvious you feel, extraordinary affection <laughs> for. And these are people, you know, good people who can see the horizon of various sorts of climate mm, change mm, or of mm. planetary disaster and who are profoundly worried in many cases or who are simply trying to understand it, but yep. almost all of whom are trying to do their best 
to be good ancestors yep. as they as they understand that. Yep. Um, and one of the early stories you tell in your book is about visiting a laboratory with a young physicist named Christopher. Mm. And he's located half a mile underground in a mine in the Earth's surface. And you point out that he's there to study dark matter, which is a paradox given that he has to go deep into the Earth to watch the stars. And I'm wondering if you don't mind us surprising you, if you'd be willing to read so readers can have a sense of a section from that. I'd love to. Does it change the way the world feels, I ask him? knowing that a hundred trillion neutrinos pass through your body every second and that countless such particles perforate our brains and our hearts, does it change the way you feel about matter, about what matters? Are you surprised we don't fall through each surface of our world at every step and push through it with each touch? Christopher nods. He thinks. His screensaver changes to the limestone towers at Guilin, seen near dusk such that they're backlit in ways that are considered widely appealing on Instagram and other large-scale image-sharing platforms. At the weekends, Christopher says, when I'm out for a walk with my wife, along the clifftops near here on a sunny day, I know our bodies are wide-meshed nets, and that the cliffs we're walking on are nets too, and sometimes it seems, yes, as miraculous, as if in our everyday world we suddenly found ourselves walking on water or air, and I wonder what it must be like sometimes not to know that. He pauses, and it's clear that he's thinking now beyond the confines of the salt cavern, beyond even the known limits of the universe. But mostly, and in several ways, I'm amazed I'm able to hold the hand of the person I love. That was one of many sections of the book that I vigorously highlighted and starred. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I wonder from that if you could speak to how being in places like this underground mine with Christopher and like the um, enormous glaciers where you go into the Mulans and, and so forth changed you personally. Yes. I. What I think that takes us to is, as you said, is the question of scale. Uh, and scale is is takes us to the question or takes me to the question of value, which is something I touched on earlier. When when you're confronted by deep time, in a sense, it it abolishes value. Oh, the world is so vast and so old and will be so old in the future that what does what does the action of one species matter? And that is, that to me is the ultimate kind of ethical escapology at work. It just gives an instant alibi and it's deeply um, problematic and irresponsible, I think, to take it. Uh, I think that deep time, and I argue that deep time should sharpen our sense of, of responsibility to ourselves and to, to, to the, the ghostly billions as yet unborn that Rebecca Solnit talks of. Uh, are we being good ancestors? But how do you do that? How do you, how do you shape value within a vastness of scale that is impossible. So I became interested in those tiny touches, those tiny encounters, mm -hmm. those tiny acts of tenderness. Um, in my case, many of them are directed, I mean, my son, I don't let my family into my work very much, but my son was growing up through the writing of this book. And there are just a couple of points where he appears and, and I just, I just want to lay a, a finger against his face and feels skin on skin to know he's there and alive and in the world and made of matter that I can touch. And we all construct our value from big philosophical systems, but also from tiny touches. Uh, so I, yes, I think if, if I learned anything, it is that I learned how to love the living 
even more than I had been able to do before. Well, in your essay, The Gifts of Reading, you quote Lewis Hyde, who says, Great art offers us images by which to imagine our lives, and once the imagination has been awakened, it is procreative. Through it, we can give more than we were given, say more than we had to say. And so it is with Underland. Hmm. And we do, to close, we like to ask our guests if they have books or films or works of art that have been especially impactful hmm. um, in, in, how they, in their thinking, and hmm. especially in their thinking about us and other beings. And Thank you for, for all of this and, uh, and, and for that quotation and for this invitation to speak with you and, and finish with a book. And I... I I think I do have to go back to the Peregrine, partly because it also because it's so germane to what what you're interested in, and partly because for all its bloody difficulty as a text, and it has some spikes and rebarbative aspects and politically problematic aspects that I still wrestle with. It also taught me how to write. Um, it, it it taught me how to how to make a grammar of animacy actually by taking verbs out as well as by putting them in and I, I I grew up learning how to write by imitating other writers and they included Barry Lopez one of the great writers of animal encounters of our time and 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 Jay Baker's The Peregrine uh, among many others so yes I would take Arctic Dreams and mm. and The Peregrine um, among that that famous desert island library that we all hope we never have to pack mm-hmm. Well, Robert McFarlane, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me both. Thank you, too, to Ryan McAvoy and the Yale Human Nature Lab for making this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts, write us a review, and visit our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Robert McFarlane and his work. Thanks for listening.